Well, my name is Brandon. Uh, I get to, to pastor Sojourn Heights. Uh, if you're new, first, second, third time, uh, and you don't know, uh, Sojourn Galleria is part of Sojourn Houston, which is a, uh, a family of neighborhood churches that share a common dream for the city, that Christ would saturate the city of Houston one neighborhood at a time. That's our dream, and we are in this together. And so I, uh, I'm honored to get to be uh, with you guys today. Um, as he said, we're in a series called Christ of the, of the Covenants. Uh, a covenant, I know that's, a, that's a, a, a big word, so let me just give a, a pretty simple on-the-ground uh, on definition for it. A covenant is a binding relationship with promises and conditions. And so we've been uh, just kind of making our way through uh, the covenants of the, of the Bible, uh, kind of the major covenants, one covenant at a time. So we've gone to Adam. Uh, to Noah, to Abraham, to Moses, to David, and then today, uh, today the new covenant. And, and if you could just kind of in your mind's eye, imagine this with me. Imagine that you're standing on the seashore, right? Waves are coming in, uh, one wave after another wave after another wave. If you stand there long enough, you'll see that these, these waves form a rising tide. Um, and so when we look at the covenants, the, the way that we see them in the scriptures is we see uh, wave upon wave that form one rising tide of grace. And so uh, we, we've said that five waves have come in. Uh, but but just, like, uh, just like the ocean would do if there was a tidal wave coming in, that the shoreline has receded, that the water has backed off, uh, and then today in the new covenant, a tidal wave of grace is going to come flooding in to us. And so let's um, let's look at it. Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. All right, so first off, uh, who, who is the new covenant with? Who's he making it with? Well, it says Israel and Judah. And let me, uh, let me explain that. that. That's not two different people. Uh, think Israel north, Israel south. All right, so if I could maybe say it this way, think Houston versus Dallas. Right? We're all Texans. We don't like each other, but we're Houston. They're Dallas. If you're from Dallas, you don't like Houston either. I, I, I lived there eight years. I, I learned that the hard way while I was there. Uh, but we are all Texans north, south. So this is one people, north, south, all right? And God said, with that people, I'm going to form a new covenant. Now, for us to understand uh, the new covenant, we need some background, right? Some backdrop on, uh, on the old covenant. And so here's, here's a question I want to ask. Verse 32, um, it says, not like the covenant that I made. Now, this is complex theology. You ready? The covenant, singular or plural? Yeah, everybody's nervous. No one wants to get that one wrong. <laughs> singular. Singular. Not like the covenant. Now, uh, here's the question. We've looked at five covenants, but this is talking about the one covenant. So what's he talking about? Uh, is it all of them as a whole? Is it talking about one specifically? Uh, the answer is, yeah, one specifically. It, it's talking about the covenant that God made when they were coming out of the land of Egypt or the covenant God made with Moses. The covenant God made with Moses. So when Jeremiah comes in and talks new covenant, he's contrasting it uh, with the covenant God made with, uh, with Moses. And I could summarize that one, maybe summarize and simplify. 
uh, think Ten Commandments. Right? We all know the Ten Commandments. We don't, maybe not know them in order, but, but we, we've heard of them at least at a minimum. So think Ten Commandments where God said, hey, uh, go and obey. Here it is. Here's the, and by the way, the Ten Commandments, they're, they're not complex ethics, right? It's, uh, hey, you're married, they're married, don't sleep with each other's wives. Uh, when you talk to me, I should, I should probably know you're telling me the truth. Um, hey, you've got one mother and one father, honor them. This is not complex ethics. Now go and, don't, hey, there's only one God, don't go have other gods. Go and obey. And Israel didn't. And there's a little phrase in here. Uh, it says that they broke the covenant, though I was their husband. Now, uh, when, I, when I read this uh, a week ago, I mean, not years ago, like first time, a week ago, that, like that phrase, though I was their husband, it just, it just leapt off the page at me. And I, and I wanted to know why. I wanted to know why, why is that in there? Why? It would have been completely sufficient if God had said they broke the covenant. Right? I'm going to make a new covenant, not like the one that I made, though they broke that covenant. That would have been sufficient. But he went farther to say, though I was their husband. Why? Well, when the, when, when the Israelites, uh, when the Jewish people, when they would have read this, there would have been a story in the Old Testament that would have just immediately flagged in their minds. It would have been the story of Hosea. The story of Hosea is about a man who had an unfaithful wife, horrifically unfaithful wife. And God said to that man, hey, you, you go and pursue that unfaithful wife. You go and chase her down. And so in flagging that, here's what God is saying to Israel through Jeremiah. He's saying, you're the unfaithful wife. I, I'm the faithful husband. You're the unfaithful wife. What, you're the one who has given yourself to other lovers. See, the, 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 point, the point is that breaking this covenant is not, simply, is not simply an issue of external morality. It's an issue of the heart. Israel, you have given yourself to other lovers. I'm, I'm here. I, have I not done enough to prove to you that I'm the lover that is willing to give myself for your soul. In Israel, you've still given yourself to other lovers. You see, breaking the covenant is not simply a matter of, man, you, you just lie a lot. It's a matter of having other gods. Um, in fact, Martin Luther, really famous uh, theologian, uh, said that uh, the, reason that we, uh, the reason that we break commandments two through nine is that we've broken commandment one that we have other gods, which is why th this is not simply an Israelite problem, right? That, that they broke the Ten Commandments, that they couldn't follow the law. It's not simply an Israelite problem. It's a human problem. It's a heart problem. Uh, my wife and I, uh, who I love, who is back there, uh, we have three kids, six, five, and two. They have progressively gotten more disobedient uh, along the way. So like our two-year-old, She's cute, and she's funny, and she is without a doubt the worst kid we've had so far. <laughs> she, uh, we went through this phase with her, her name's Amelia. Uh, we went through this phase with Amelia where, uh, where if we said no to her, uh, she would hit you, like she would hit back, and then she would drop to the floor, spread her legs, and <clears throat> spit on the ground. Now, where did she learn that? 
like my, my wife and I, like we, like things aren't perfect in our home. It's not like we never argue. It's not like we don't debate over things. It's, but, but here's what's never happened. Um, we have never gotten to an argument. I said, I disagree. And my wife went, pa, jab to the jaw. Like it's never once happened. Um, nor has she ever dropped to the ground, spread her legs and spit. Never. Now, listen, uh, disobedience, uh, disobedience is the DNA of humanity. Why? Because having other gods has been the DNA of humanity from Genesis 3 on. It's woven in at birth. It's not a learned trait. We're born with it. We're born other gods, giving ourselves to others. And so God says, hey, you... Um, he broke that covenant. He gave the Ten Commandments, and Israel basically fights back, basically spits on the ground. And God says, I'm, I'm going to make a new covenant now, not, not like that covenant that you broke. And this new covenant, it's got promises, like every other covenant, uh, and there are four of them, and it's in Jeremiah 33, verse 33. It says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. All right, four promises right here in the text. You ready? Promise one internalizing grace, that grace would become internal. I'll put my law within them, and I'll write it on their heart, that the Ten Commandments that were written on stone now get written on the heart of man, which is another evidence that God's not after your moral conformity. Like, listen, the Lord is not looking at your life right now thinking, man, I just, that, that dude, that lady, they are just killing it morality. Like, they're just all over it with just, I mean, they are just, knuckling it well. Like, that's not what the Lord wants. The Lord is not simply after moral conformity for moral conformity's sake. God is after your heart. He wants the law written on your heart. And he wants you to obey, but we'll get to that in a second. No, we'll get to that right now. Um, it, if, if I could stretch out the kid's analogy a little farther. If you guys came to my house, uh, and you're in my house, and we're eating dinner uh, and we're hanging out, and we're talking, and uh, we've probably got a good steak that I've grilled on the charcoal grill that I'm, I'm getting pretty decent at right now. Uh, we probably have a good glass of wine, uh, and we have good conversation. And then if my, my five-year-old son, uh, if my five-year-old son uh, did something that was disobedient, and you, and you walked over, and you grabbed my son, and you said, hey, hey, man, uh, Easton, uh, it, listen, you, you don't have to obey, uh, but really you should want to. Uh, I would grab you and walk you right out the front door of my house, uh, and we would talk about how you're not going to come back in until we're on the same page. The same page that obedience for my children is not an option. My, my kids' obedience is not an option. And, and if for the next 50 years, the next 50 years, my, my kids do everything I tell them to do, but there's no love, not from me to my kids or my kids to me, that's not a win. What the Lord wants is not moral conformity for moral conformity's sake. Or let me say it this way. 
He doesn't want your obedience for obedience's sake. He is after your heart. And the overflow of him having your heart is your obedience. Promise number two. Promise number two. No, hang on. Personal holiness. Let me, let me talk to, to, to Christians in the room for a second. Personal holiness is not an invitation either. Right? Be holy as I am holy, Peter. Like the Lord wants your obedience, and he wants it as the overflow of having your heart, which is why holiness, personal holiness, there needs to be a serious pursuit of holiness in your life. It's not an option. It's not an invitation. All right, promise two, personal relationship. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. That in the, in the Bible, if God wants to get really personal, and I mean really personal, he uses the language of my people. I will be their God and they will be my people. And so if I could illustrate it, uh, it's this really formulaic and beautiful covenantal language that's in the Bible. Uh, my, my wife uh, to you is simply a wife. Not to me, though. To me, that's my wife. Right? A few months ago, we were at a performance for my kids at, their, uh, at the elementary school that they go to, and uh, it was a stage like this, and they were doing a, a Black History Month performance, and it was really cute, and it was fun, and it was, uh, there were a lot of kids up on the stage, uh, and while my daughter was up there, uh, there, were, there were probably 10, 12 other kids on the stage at the time, and 11 of those kids, those were a kid up there, but that one little girl, that was my kid. That's my kid. This is deeply personal language that's used in the scriptures about Israel, that I will be their God, and they will be my people. And then promise three, no class distinction. There's no class distinction inside the church. And so when he says, no longer shall one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least to the greatest. Jeremiah here is speaking of a particular kind of teaching. So when you, uh, when you see this phrase, from the least to the greatest, uh, used in Jeremiah and in the rest of the Old Testament, it's speaking of classes of people or ranks of people. And so when, when he links the, uh, this kind of teaching that there will be no more teaching of and this rank or class of people, um, he's speaking about uh, Old Testament priests in the Old Testament. So in the Old Testament, there were this category of people, they were called priests, and they would bring, uh, they would bring offerings and sacrifices uh, to the temple um, into the, the presence of God. Uh, and Jeremiah is saying that this particular priesthood, these people who have a distinct and special kind of knowledge of God, this is going away in the new covenant because the kind of knowledge, the special knowledge of God that they have, it's for all. All will have it in the new covenant. So there is no class distinction. Right? There is uh, no people who have a special line to God that you don't have. And then uh, promise for complete forgiveness. Forgive iniquity and remember their sin no more. Now, when we talk about sin, I, I know uh, at times it can feel, uh, or to some of us in this room, it, it might feel a bit archaic to talk about sin. It might feel like, hey, we're, uh, we're, we're modern society, and as a modern society, I think we should maybe come up with different terms and talk about uh, uh, you know, the brokenness of the world using some word other than sin. But, but let me try to define sin a bit for us and, and show that it really is applicable today. So usually when we think about sin, we, we think, uh, I, I've got this list of rules 
uh, and I've broken the rules. I've broken the rules of God. Uh, but maybe we could broaden it out a little bit and, and see it this way. See it less about breaking the rules uh, and more about breaking the heart of God. See, when, when we define sin, I, I would say that sin is uh, anything that we do to try to be our own God or to have another God besides God, right? Which is the first issue. The first problem in Genesis 3 was what? You'll be like God, right? The undercurrents of all sin is that I'm going to be uh, my own God or, um, or maybe... If we could use Jeremiah's language, if we could use Jeremiah's language, sin is having another lover. Did you know, there's no kids in the room, right? Um, excellent. Uh, did, did you know that there, there are places in Jeremiah where, uh, where in the, the English translation will say, um, hey, Israel, you went up onto the mountain and you offered yourself gave yourself to other gods. Do you know in the Hebrew, uh, there's places where it says you went on the mountain and you spread your legs for other gods? Why that? Is, it, is Jeremiah just trying to be like a 21st century shock value preacher? No. It's for the teaching value of it. It's because when you have another lover, you, you are handing yourself over to that lover. You are fully giving yourself away. You are giving control of yourself to someone else. And so when you have other lovers, spiritually speaking, you're, you're giving your soul, control of your soul to someone else. And if I could maybe localize it for us, I, I think... I mean, there are a thousand ways that we could probably apply this and talk through this that, that might be nuanced for each one of us. Uh, but two predominant ones that in Houston, in urban core Houston especially, that we really um, give ourselves to, one, uh, one, professional achievement, work, success. And if I just climb the ladder and climb the ladder and climb the ladder and climb the ladder, if I just have enough, if I just make it, Right, I don't quite have enough. I just have a little bit more. All the safety and security that I'm looking for in other lovers or I feel in other lovers, I might have in professional achievement. And there will come a day where that lets you down. There will come a day. There will come a day when that lover betrays you. Or maybe another one. Maybe another one for us, uh, it, it, it might be uh, religious conformity, right? That we have so handed ourselves over to the lover of religion that we think by simply behaving, we can earn the favor of God. And that, that's a lover that will let you down. That's a, that's a lover that in the deep, dark, quiet moments of your soul will do nothing for what aches inside of you. In fact, it, it, in fact, I, I think Martin Luther, I think Martin Luther might say that's you trying to use commandments two through nine to fix the problem of commandment one. And you can't. 
So God makes a new covenant. Four promises. Internalizing grace, personal relationship, their class distinctions, and complete uh, forgiveness. But here, here's the thing. Uh, of these four promises, only one of them, this is what's interesting, only one of them is actually unique to the new covenant. Only one of them is new, right? So internalizing grace, not new. Deuteronomy 6, 6, and these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Deuteronomy 10, 12 through 13. And now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I'm commanding you today. Verse 16, circumcised therefore the foreskin of your heart. Deuteronomy 11, you shall therefore lay up these words of mine in your heart. This is, this is not new to the new covenant. This is woven into the Old Testament. It's woven in, in particular to the boot, to the, not book, uh, but book of Deuteronomy. <laughs> Personal relationship, not new. Jeremiah, not even new to Jeremiah. Jeremiah 24, 7. Uh, I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. For they shall return to me with their whole heart. Not even new to Jeremiah, complete forgiveness, not new. Psalm 31, 32, 1 through 2, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, in whose spirit there is no deceit. Not new. These are woven in these as promises. As promises, they are not new promises. These are promises from God woven into the Old Testament. The new one? Breaking down class distinctions, and that one being new, takes us right to Hebrews 8. In Hebrews 8, uh, to, to understand how the New Testament takes this new covenant out of Jeremiah and applies it, um, Hebrews 8 sits really in the heart of the book of Hebrews. Uh, the, the book of Hebrews is really kind of a three-point sermon, uh, and point two is that Jesus is better than Moses. Right? Remember what Jeremiah contrasted the new covenant with? Moses. Hebrews, right in the heart of it. Jesus is better than Moses, the Mosaic Covenant. And how does he prove it? By saying um, Jesus is the true priest, the priest to come. Verse 1, Hebrews 8, verse 1. Now, now the point, the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest to also have something to offer. Verse 6. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. Now, so far, here's what Hebrews 8 is saying. It's saying this. It's saying that, hey, uh, listen, uh, um, there, there are priests in the Old Testament. Here's what they did. They did offerings and sacrifices. And this, this covenant, this covenant that Jesus is going to bring or has brought is better. Why is it better? Chapter 9. But when Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things that have come, 
Then, through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of blood of goats and calves, but, but, listen to this, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ through the eternal spirit, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Did you see what made it better? In the Old Covenant, in the Old Covenant, you had a priest who brought a sacrifice. In the New Covenant, you have a priest who is the sacrifice. Old covenant, priest brought a sacrifice. New covenant, the priest is the sacrifice. See, it's why priests in the old covenant were a special class of people with a special role. But their special class and their special role was a foreshadow to Jesus. It was a foreshadow to who Christ is and what he would do. They would go into the presence of God as a foretaste of Jesus going to the presence of the Father. They would bring sacrifices as a foreshadow of the sacrifice of the life of Christ. It's the difference when we think old to new. Old to new. It's the difference in shadow versus substance. All right, so if I'm, if I'm standing right here, as I am, if I'm standing right here, and my wife, and my wife is around the corner of that door over there, and I can see her shadow, like I know it's her, I know she's standing there, and I can see her shadow, I know, I know that my wife is right around the corner, like I know she's right there, but seeing the shadow is not the same thing as walking around the corner, being able to grab at my wife, and hold my wife, and kiss my wife, and all the things that I want to do when I walk around the corner and I see my wife. The shadow is not the substance. It's not the same thing. And so what, what, what Hebrews is saying is that when you look into the Old Covenant, in particular the priesthood, you're looking at the shadows of Jesus. But now, now, the substance has come. The substance is here. You're able to grab him, hold him. When you see that, when you see that the substance is here, you know that we have something better, chapter 8, because the priest appeared and offered himself, chapter 9, so that chapter 10 can be true of you. 10 verse 14, for by a single offering, for by a single offering he has perfected for those, for all time, those who are being sanctified. Has perfected, listen, past, like it's already happened so that you can be sanctified, so that he can sanctify you. It's happening to you right now, that it's already accomplished what's happening right now. So this is, 
I, I think one of the single most life-altering statements in the Scriptures. He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified right now. That's why this when we, when we walk into a parish, when you leave here uh, and you go and you eat lunch at the, the, the thing that you're going to, the, the place that some of y'all know about, uh, I don't know if we're invited or not, we can talk about that afterwards. Uh, when you go and eat lunch and then you go on with your day and then on Tuesday or Wednesday or Thursday or whatever day it is that your parish gathers together and you show up in that home or you go with somebody in your parish to coffee on Friday or dinner on Saturday, if you get this, like if Hebrews 10.14 is true for you, you won't be afraid of being known. Like you won't be afraid of being known. Like you'll just stop playing the religious game where what you put in front of people is how you obey two through nine. And you'll be willing to say, hey, listen, uh, I've, I failed, I failed, and I failed again, and, and I need you. You'll be willing to be vulnerable with the people around you because, because you're becoming who you are. And the people around you are becoming who they are. And so you won't fear being known. Because you know that you're not who you will be, but you already are who Christ made you to be. Like in a real sense, you have been perfected, Hebrews 10. In a real sense, you're being sanctified, Hebrews 10. You're becoming who you are. That's why every time uh, you gather together on a Wednesday and you pray or you read the scriptures or you laugh or you cry, here's what you're doing. You are communally becoming who you are. So when you gather on a Sunday and you walk through the order of our gathering, we call it a liturgy, and you walk through call to worship, you confess your sin corporately and privately. And then we hear an assurance of pardon read, and at the end there's going to be this benediction. You know, those four parts, those four parts of our gathering, you know what they mirror? God is holy. We are sinners. Christ saves us. Christ sends us. Every week we're reminded of who we are. Every week when we walk through, it's why, it's why being at the beginning of the gathering for the call to worship matters. Every week you're rehearsing who you are. And we're doing it collectively, corporately. Let's keep reading verse 15. Hebrews 10, 15. And the Holy Spirit also, also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them, after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law on their hearts and I'll write them on their minds. And he adds, I'll remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. You see what Hebrews is saying. It's saying that because of the Spirit of God, the promises of the new covenant have now become real for you. Internalized grace, it's yours. It's yours, it's real, it's actual, it's here, it's present. The law is written on your heart you can obey now. 
You can. Listen. Christian. To the Christians in the room. You don't have to sin anymore. You don't have to. And I'm not saying that you won't. I'm saying that you don't have to. I'm saying the law has been written on your hearts. You are able to obey now. So stop giving yourself to other lovers. Have the God that is God above all gods. And obey. Obey. Personal relationship. You belong to Christ. You belong to Christ. Christ belongs to you. You are my people. In the same way that I look at that stage and I see my little girl and I say, that's my daughter. In the same way, I look out at this room and I see a lot of wives in here, but that one's my wife. Looking at you and saying, you're, you're not just a people. You're not just a person. You're my people. You're my people. You belong to me. Complete forgiveness. You have it. You have it. And so when you don't obey, you, you can stop killing yourself. Like, you, you can stop the anxiety-ridden, uh, I'll-never-live-up life that you're living. You, you already have it. It's already your. You're, Jesus doesn't need you to add to what he's done for you to have forgiveness. In fact, to even try is an insult to grace, to quote biblical language. He doesn't need you to add to it. He calls you to obey, not to add to what he's done, but because of what he's done. Class distinction, there, there is none. Like, there is none. You are the holy priesthood. You are the priesthood. Like, First Peter, you're a holy nation, royal priesthood. Like, this is who you are. There is nobody in this room. I mean, I, like, I love what I get to do. Like, and I know Taylor does. Like, I, I love this. This is, I think that, uh, I think I have the greatest job in the world. But let me tell you something. I don't have a line to God that you don't have. Like, I don't have this special intimacy with God that's not available to you. Like, there's not like a clergy distinction, and then there's like, you've got the ceiling, and that ceiling on your spiritual depth is the floor on mine. Like, that's not how it works. In fact, John Piper is a, Hero, pastor of, of, of mine, he, he, he's older now, um, uh, he's retired, uh, pastored a church in Minnesota for 30-ish years, something like that, um, and he said a few years into to being at that church, when he was in his uh, mid-30s, uh, one of the things that he realized that was difficult for him was looking around and realizing, I'm, I am not even close to the most mature Christian here. Like, there's not some you know, line that he has to gather. There's not some floor in his spiritual depth that you can't cross. There's no class distinction. The kind of knowledge and intimate knowledge of God that was for the priest in the Old Testament is now for the priest in the New Testament, which is you. Which is you. And so, six weeks ago, um, we, we dive into the series. We, we dive into the series that we called Christ of the Covenants, walking from... Adam, to, to, to Noah, to Abraham, to Moses, to David, and today to the new covenant. And here, here's the question. Here's a question. What, what were we hoping? 
Like when we started this series, what, what was it that we wanted you to see and you to know out of this series? Like what did we want you to leave the series with? Well, here it is. Here it is. I want you to leave knowing that Christ is the true and better Adam. The one who would perfectly obey the Father, who would climb the tree of death so that you and I could eat from the tree of life. That, that Christ was the true and better Noah, who on the cross would be flooded with the wrath of God so that Christ become the ark for the church. That is the true and better Abraham. The one that would leave his father and wander in the desert to create a new family, the church that would bless all families through. That he's the true and better Moses. That he's the one who would fulfill the law and obey the commands so that you now in Christ are free to go and obey. And he's the true and better David, the unlikely hero who would take down a giant for the people of God to become our shepherd and our king. Jesus is the true and better. Who? Who? Is the promised offspring of Genesis 3.15. Who would sacrifice himself for us. Point. The Bible's not about you. The Bible is not about you. It's simply not. And that, and that is really, really good news. Because if it was, if it was, it would be about how you fail and how you succeed. But instead, it's about how all the promises that were made in the Old Covenant have been fulfilled in Christ and how you are in Christ. And so rather than being about your failures and your successes, it's about how everything that was promised has come true in Christ. You are in Christ. And so every promise of the Old Covenant is available to you today. That's what it's about. Listen, it means that there is nothing, that there is nothing, nothing that has been promised by God to His people that wasn't fulfilled in Christ that you don't have or have available to you today. I.e., there is nothing that you will need 10,000 years from now that you don't have today or you don't have available to you today. Nothing. Nothing. The Bible's not about you. It's about Christ. And it's really, really good news. It's really good news. Because it's not about your successes. Because all of us know we don't have many of those. And it's not about your failures. All of us know we have a lot of those. It's about how Christ entered in, climbed the tree, who ate of the curse of Genesis 3 so that we could have the life of revelation that is to come. And so today, uh, Hebrews has said the tidal wave has come. The tidal wave's crashed in. But let me tell you what the rest of the New Testament says. It says the tidal wave is still coming in. Like it's coming. It's washed over us, but it's still coming in. And so maybe, uh, may, maybe 
maybe I could, I could land the plane and close it this way. Why? Why be a part of a church plant? Like, why do what you're doing right now? Like, I mean, there are tons of churches in the city. They, they are more established. They offer amenities that Sojourn will likely never offer. Why do this? Like, why, why be a part of what is five and six months old as a small band of people? Why? It's so the tidal wave of grace might flood the city one neighborhood at a time so that the tidal wave of grace might flood this Galleria area. That's why. Why else? Why else? It's so that the tidal wave that has come in, that is still coming in, that has washed over you, might wash over your neighbors. That's why. So why does holiness matter? Other than it's your, your own worship of Jesus. Why does holiness matter? You don't know how the tidal wave is seen. It's seen in you being a distinctive people in your own lives and together. The tidal wave is made visible in the holiness of the church. And so go, go, leave this place and become who you are. Let me pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for uh, these men and women who, who gather together, who make up this Sojourn Galleria family, these, these men and women who, who are giving their lives to seeing the tidal wave of grace come flooding over this part of the city. And I pray for um, men and women in this room uh, who would say, I'm, I'm not a Christian, not yet, but... Uh, maybe I'm curious. I, I pray that they would know that all the promises of God are available to them today. And how do you have it? How do you get it? You believe. You believe. You, you look at your life and you say, I'm done with other lovers. I want Jesus. That's the offer on the table. Pray in Christ's name. Amen.